you have your Bibles this morning, and I hope that you do, join me in turning to the book of 1 Peter chapter number 5. 1 Peter chapter number 5. This is a passage that speaks almost exclusively to the office of pastor or of elder. My preaching of this passage in the past has been almost exclusive to congregations of pastors or of elders. When you come to a passage like this in a Sunday morning congregation, a gathering of the Lord's people, the overwhelming majority of which are not pastors, you wonder about how to best approach the passage. But I am determined this morning to approach the passage just the way I would if this entire assembly were comprised of pastors for three specific reasons. One, for those who are pastors among us, there is a need for the nourishment of soul and encouragement as to the responsibilities and obligations unique to the office of elder. Two, it is equally important that there be a healthy biblical understanding within the body of Christ as to what they should reasonably expect and hold pastors accountable to. And three, it is my hopeful expectation that right here within this body, there are younger men and older men alike who God is moving to ministry in some capacity. And they need a well-rounded biblical understanding of what the future ought to hold for them as they seek to walk worthy of the calling with which they have been called. We've come here to the conclusion of 1 Peter as a letter. We'll not conclude our series this morning, but we've come to the conclusion section of the book. The body of the letter closed at the end of chapter 5. And here in this close to the letter, Peter is careful to include a word of encouragement and exhortation for pastors. Not only is it the experience of the church that some degree of suffering, suffering by persecution, is beginning to be experienced. This is also a reality for the church's leadership. In fact, when persecution comes, often pastors find themselves at the tip of the spear. Suffering, especially suffering that comes through persecution, not only creates hardship arising from circumstances external to the church, things are happening around that create pressure, stress, and even pain on the church. These seasons can also bring criticism from within the body. If a misstep is taken or a decision not well understood is made, there can be not only pressure from outside the church, but pressure from inside as well. We need not look to the distant past for examples of this. I will say with regards to the pandemic and our navigation of the pandemic, if there was a great deal of grumbling from within our congregation, most of that did not make it to my ears. And for that, I am fortunate and quite thankful. And you are to be uh, praised for just that. But that experience was not shared by many other pastors. In fact, on an almost weekly basis, I was hearing from brothers who were being forced to make challenging decisions within the context of their local church. Not only did they have a pandemic beating on them from about the church, they had great frustration from within the church concerning the decisions that were there being made. Seasons of suffering are not only difficult for the membership of the church, but also for her leaders. So when the tensions are high and the stakes are great, how are pastors to respond? How are pastors to navigate the responsibilities of everyday shepherding, especially when those are coupled together with real hardship from without? First Peter 5, 1 through 7, at least helps us to begin to answer that question. If you found your way there, join me in standing out of respect and honor for the reading of God's word. First Peter chapter 5, beginning in verse number 1. The Bible says, Therefore, as a fellow elder and a witness to the sufferings of the Messiah, and also a participant in the glory about to be revealed, I exhort the elders among you, shepherd God's flock among you, not overseeing out of compulsion, but freely, according to God's will, not for the money, but eagerly, not lording it over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, 
you'll receive the unfading crown of glory. In the same way, younger men, be subject to the elders. And all of you clothe yourselves with humility toward one another because God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God so that he may exalt you at the proper time, casting all your care on him because he cares about you. May the Lord bless the reading and the preaching of his word. You may be seated. Peter begins by reintroducing himself in chapter 5 and verse 1. He says, Therefore, as a fellow elder and witness to the sufferings of the Messiah and also a participant in the glory about to be revealed, I exhort the elders among you. Because of the sentence structure, the way Peter states what he states here, not only is he identifying with his fellow elders and holding the office of elder, he's identifying with them as fellow witnesses to the suffering of Christ and as participants in the future glory to be revealed at the return of Jesus. It is not that they witnessed the sufferings of Jesus in the up-close and personal way that Peter would have as an apostle, something of a right-hand man to Jesus in his earthly ministry, but rather that they are themselves experiencing persecution, filling up the sufferings of Christ. They have all become, in some way, first-hand witnesses to the sufferings of Jesus, even if Peter's experiences surpass that of the elders of rural Asia Minor. Peter speaks here to the fraternal relationship that exists among pastors. There is a brotherhood among pastors. I can find myself in a conversation with a pastor, even from a different denominational structure, a different part of the country under completely different circumstances, and there is immediately a kinship that can exist among us. It is true that that kind of kinship exists among the church, but I have observed that it's an even stronger bond that exists among pastors, and that is a most positive thing. For pastors, it is a positive to have a network of brother pastors around him to provide encouragement and even accountability, those on whom he can call for counsel in a given set of circumstances. I am glad that there's a closeness that exists among our pastors, and I'm glad that in general there's a closeness that exists among all pastors. There's something theological that's worth noting here in verse 1 as well. Peter sees himself here as a fellow elder, as a fellow witness, as a fellow partaker in the glory to be revealed. He sees himself as a co-laborer with the pastors of the churches of Asia, Bithynia, Cappadocia, and abroad, the rural churches of Asia Minor. I point that out to note this. If the apostle Peter ever was a pope, he himself was certainly unaware of that. He sees himself on level playing ground as a co-laborer, a partner in the gospel, not a superior dictating to those pastoring the house churches of Asia Minor. He saw himself as a partner with them, they partners even with him. Now he writes here, he says in verse 1, to exhort the elders among you and then gives the most emphatic of commands in these seven verses in verse number two. Peter says to the elders in Asia Minor, shepherd God's flock among you. This is the primary responsibility of the pastor. Shepherd the flock of God among you. Now, pastoring is, is one of those jobs, responsibilities, and job's not an entirely appropriate term to use, but it's not entirely inappropriate either. It's one of those sets of responsibilities that can be difficult to define, but it's usually pretty readily recognizable when you see it. In order to communicate all that Peter intends to express here, he uses the imagery, the language, the metaphor of shepherding. Shepherd the flock of God among you. I would imagine that this metaphor, this imagery resonates with Peter for some very special reasons. You may remember that it was Peter who denied Jesus three times in his trial and ultimately his crucifixion. 
Peter meets with Jesus for breakfast after his resurrection at the Sea of Galilee. Jesus says, Peter, do you love me? He says, yes, Lord. Feed my sheep, Jesus says. And then he asks a second time, Jesus speaking, Peter, do you love me? Peter would respond, yes, Lord. Jesus says, feed my sheep. And he asks a third time, Peter, as though to say, do you really love me? Peter says, yes, Lord, you know I love you. And Jesus says, then feed my sheep. Peter understands the imagery of shepherding and sheep feeding, perhaps as well as any of the apostles. And he leverages that imagery here to express to elders, to pastors, the incredible responsibility that they have to see to the protection and provision for the sheep that God has entrusted to their care. Now, even those of you who may have agricultural background or experience are so far removed from the ancient experiences of the shepherd that there's a great deal of this imagery that is just lost on us. But we know as followers of Jesus of the shepherd's psalm, the 23rd psalm, where David says, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. The product of God's shepherding over the life of David is that he was absent any want. There was nothing for which David needed over the course of his life. God was his ever-present provider and protector. David said, he leads me into green pastures and beside still waters, all of my material needs, all of my needs for sustenance are, are met. He is vigilant in providing for those needs. David said, he restores my soul. He binds and bandages the wounds of life. When suffering comes, the shepherd is to be present to minister to the need. This is further indicated in the anointing of David's head as he expresses it in the shepherd's psalm. He anoints my head with oil. He provides for my needs. He binds and he heals my wounds. He's ever present, never leaving nor forsaking. The shepherd's staff is always there such that I need not fear even in the valley of the shadow of death. There's a picture there of David dining in the presence of his enemies. The idea being his back is turned to his enemies because the good shepherd is there to protect by the power of the shepherd's staff. Just in the shepherd's psalm, we learn something about the nearness of the shepherd to the sheep and how constant he was in his providing for their protection and meeting their every need. Peter says, shepherd God's flock among you. Not only does Peter here say something about the responsibility of the pastor through the shepherd imagery, he says something about the proximity of the shepherd to the sheep. Now this is important. There is an ever-growing distance between shepherds and sheep in the sense Peter intends that needs to be alleviated if there's going to be real health in the body of Christ. And some of that distance is being created by shepherds, and some of that distance is being created by sheep. We live in a technological age. M most of you, even, even those who are consistent in the fellowship of our church here, you have as a part of your devotional or daily life a, a podcast pastor or an online pastor or people that you read who serve in different contexts who may be far off. And that's not a bad thing. In fact, it can be a very good thing. It's a very good thing to me. But I want you to remember along the way that you need the presence of very real shepherds in your life in close proximity to your life in order to provide the protection and the counsel and the encouragement that is essential in the Christian journey. You may have a podcast pastor. We may share podcast pastors. But you need very real flesh and blood pastors as a part of your life. To shepherd the flock of God among you means there must necessarily be close proximity between the shepherd and the sheep. This post-pandemic world, at least that's what I hope we have now, there is the phenomenon of virtual church. 
Listen, we talked about this throughout that whole experience, and we put services online and did all of those things, and this very service right now is online, and there are people, in fact, there will be hundreds of people who watch in an online setting this service, and that is a good thing. I, I, I would not take that ability away, but it is no replacement for the corporate assembly of the body. There is no virtual church. There is the supplementing of your devotional life through online access and podcasts and books and various other ministries. But you and I need close proximity in order to share the kind of fellowship God intends for us to share within the body of Christ. There is a sense in which the sheepfold is creating distance by pursuing nourishment for their soul from broken cisterns that cannot provide for them all that God intends the under-shepherd to truly provide. On the other hand, there's distance being created by shepherds. Shepherds who, by virtue of personality or indifference, remove themselves, distance themselves from congregations. This is an age-old issue. But what I'm observing in many instances now is shepherds who seem far more concerned with their social media persona than shepherding the flock of God among them. Now, I have podcast pastors and online guys, and there's a handful of people that I listen to on an almost daily basis each week. They are the background noise of my ministry. So again, I'm not dismissing the usefulness of pastors and other contexts from some great distance in our personal devotional lives. But often I find that people come to me and they want insight about my podcast pastor. You know, come now, I'm all excited about this guy. And in 140 characters, he said it just right, pastor. And he told them, and you would be amazed at how charismatic he is. And you're often disappointed when you come to me with your podcast pastor that I am not nearly as enamored as you are. And I'll tell you why. I regard myself as a fairly high-capacity person. I value hard work. In fact, if you came to me and you said, Pastor, I don't think that you're working very hard and so-and-so is working harder than you, I would be very deeply hurt by that, and I would try to make sure that that never happened again for the rest of my life or his. I would make sure that with all of my power, I would outwork him from that day forward. I'm a pretty high-capacity person, and I take some delight in being a high-capacity person. In fact, in spite of being fairly high capacity, I go to sleep most nights with regrets about calls that were not made, visits that were not made, things that I wish had been done differently in that day. I like to be high capacity, almost at times to a fault. My wife would say often to a fault. I would say at times. And in my experience, in my experience, as what I would regard to be a high capacity pastor, I am so actively busy at trying to shepherd the flock of God among us. I do not have time to meddle in the affairs of other churches or to litigate every social issue or to comment on every story in the 24-hour news cycle. So oftentimes, the brothers that you are so enamored with, I am incredibly unimpressed with. Because the fact that you can make 20 or 30 social media a post, post a day is indicative to me of the fact that you are not well shepherding the flock of God among you. I am far more concerned, and we ought to be, with shepherding those God has entrusted to our care than establishing a social media persona. If that's ever the choice that needs to be made, it ought to be a no-brainer. Shepherd the flock of God among you. Now, often what motivates these guys, what motivates these guys is not a concern with precision in the gospel or the advancement of the kingdom, but a contentious spirit that seeks to meddle in the affairs of others, which is itself a disqualifying characteristic from the very office of pastor. Shepherd the flock of God among you. Your first priority, the first responsibility, is to minister to the needs of those under your direct care. Peter says, shepherd the flock of God among you. And then he gives some do's and don'ts. This is what it ought to look like. And this is what it ought not 
to look like. Shepherd God's flock among you, not overseeing out of compulsion, but freely according to God's will. What Peter is saying is that you ought not have to be forced to do the work of ministry as a pastor or as an elder. In fact, he's saying it ought to be your delight. It ought to be your joy. Now, I got to tell you, I get in these preacher circles sometimes, and I'm, I'm kind of Debbie Downer in those circles, partly because I'm a little contrarian, but mostly because there's far too much complaining going on to honor the command of God that we do all things without grumbling or complaining. It's like you get together and it's festivus for pastors, airing grievances from within their congregations. Brothers, we, we get to serve in this capacity. It used to be that the old heads, when God called me to ministry in our country church, they would warn against this scenario where there were God-called preachers and then there were mama-called preachers and pastor-called preachers. And what they were talking about were guys that were being compelled into ministry by someone in their circle or within their family, but they had yet to experience the true call of God on their life. Peter says we ought not to serve that way. We don't serve by compulsion. We serve freely because we get to serve in this way. Now, I've never been able to get my head around this idea of begrudgingly going about service to God. I hear testimonies from guys who say, I sensed a call to ministry, and I ran in the other direction. That was never my experience. My thought then, and often my thought now is, I get to do this for the rest of my life. I go into that office sometimes on Sunday afternoon exhausted and privately smile and think to myself, God lets me do this every single Sunday. God lets me do this every day. Yes, there are challenges. There are burdens. There's a great deal of burden often that we bear with as pastors. But ultimately and finally, we get to be a part of the most joyous occasions of your lives. When babies are born, we are there. When there's, when there's rejoicing and celebration, I did the most precious wedding ceremony you have ever seen in your life yesterday. I don't get to do that, but for serving as a pastor. I stood right here moments ago and received a lady we've been praying for Monday by Monday for months and months, maybe years at this point, who said, I'm ready to receive Jesus as the Lord of my life. Who else gets to do that for a living? Peter says we don't serve out of compulsion, but freely, joyously, we get to do what God has assigned to us and to give our undivided attention to this work. Now there's something else that needs to be addressed in verse two. Peter is used a noun here in a verb way. He's verbed a noun. He says, not overseeing out of compulsion, but freely. Overseeing is the word I have in view. It comes from a Greek term that will sound familiar to you. It comes from episkopos, which is where the English word episcopal comes from. And it's usually translated in its noun form as bishop. So Peter has one group in mind. He says, we don't bishop out of compulsion but freely. Now in verse one, he speaks of himself as a fellow elder and those other house church leaders as elders, which comes from a second Greek word that will likewise sound familiar to you, presbyteros, and the word is where presbyterian in the English language comes from, and it always translates in the English as elder. Same group of people. So you've got bishop, you've got elder, and then Peter says, shepherd God's flock among you, which comes from a Greek word we usually translate as pastor or as shepherd. So three words for the same person. And the way I've heard it put in the past and the way I like to put it is bishop has reference to the position. The office itself, in fact, we talk in Baptist circles of the office of pastor, but if we want to be biblically precise, we would better talk about the office of bishop. That's the office or the position. Elder has reference to the person, the person himself of proven character. 
by virtue of his character in the community, he has proven himself to be qualified to hold the office, not only in character, but also in his ability to teach the word of God and to be sound in doctrine. Bishop is the office or the position, and elder is the person, and pastor is the practice. It's what he does. Each of these three terms make reference to the same individual person, office, person, practice. That's who he is. He's bishop, pastor, elder. Now, I point that out not only to sort of set aside or allay any of your concerns with those terms because they tend to have certain theological or denominational connotations. You don't have to be afraid of those words. We find them here in the Bible. You just need to understand what they intend. But the, the bigger point here, the more pressing issue is that this is who we are as elder, pastor, bishop. You can't separate the job that you do from the person that you are. In fact, I'll say to you that pastoring as a job, is a, it's, it's just a burden that's far too great for any man to bear. But if it's who you are from the very marrow of your bones, it is a delight. I haven't worked a day in 18 years because I love to do what God has called me to do. Now, there are some days when it's heavy. There are some tear-stained days, no doubt. But there are the delights of watching God move even during those seasons of great hardship and difficulty. This must be who you are as a pastor or you will never survive in this manner of service. Shepherd God's flock among you. Not overseeing out of compulsion but freely according to God's will. Not for money but eagerly. Never for greedy gain, never for self-interest, for what you stand to get. There ought to ever be a willingness to make sacrifices of yourself for the advancement of the kingdom. Pastors are not accepted from this high call of Jesus on our life. We don't serve for what we can get. Peter is clear about where our reward lies later in verse number 4. Verse 3, Peter continues, we're not to lord it over those God has entrusted to us, but be examples to the flock. Two things, it's apparent that there is a measure of authority that is assigned to the office of pastor. That can be a discomforting thing for pastors to point out from time to time, but it is, it is an essential observation to make. More often than I like, I find myself pulled into conversations with church members and pastors who are experiencing some degree of conflict. I don't like that, but that is the reality for me often. Recently, I was in a conversation about a given church body and the struggles that they were experiencing, and the observation was made that the problem with that church is that everyone wants to be in charge. And I had to agree that was precisely the issue in that particular body. Now, I got news for you. Not everyone can be in charge. And a scenario in which everyone is attempting to be in charge is a recipe for disaster. But the authority enjoyed by the pastor in the office of pastor is not one to be lorded over those God has entrusted to his care. In fact, Peter is careful here to note that pastors are to lead by example. I don't know a lot about agriculture or shepherding or flocks or those sorts of things. Someone else will have to speak more directly to that. But I do know there's a distinct difference in how you shepherd sheep and how you shepherd goats. You drive goats, but you lead sheep. And that's precisely the thing that Peter is describing in our passage. Lead by example. Be an example to the flock. One of the scary things about serving in any kind of leadership, but especially spiritual leadership, is that within the span of about 10 years, a congregation will take on the personality of their pastor. That's a scary thing. Because it means that not only will the congregation take on the strengths or emphases of the pastor, they will likewise take on the weaknesses and the bad emphases of the pastor. 
This is one among many reasons God has assigned the responsibility of eldership not to one but to many men within the body, multiple men within the body. I'm happy to report to you that we have a very well-rounded pastoral staff. Where I am weak, I find that my brother pastors here are remarkably strong. And I would seek to highlight and and to uh, celebrate their giftings and the contributions that they make to the body of Christ. I hope that as you seek to follow after the example set by your pastors slash elders, that you'll take a gander at the composite good things that we bring to the table and not the many bad things that we may unfortunately bring to the table. Where there is weakness in one, there is strength in the other. And this provides for us, in my estimation, a very well-rounded, healthy, and effective ministry team. Be an example to the flock. Now, this is what is required of the office of pastor. And there is a responsibility that the prospective pastor, the current pastor, has at examining himself against this standard. But at the same time, there is a responsibility that the congregation has in order to hold accountable the pastor to this level of expectation, to this, to this type of, of qualification. I want to speak to that for just a moment. We, we have a, a responsibility, you have a responsibility as a body, that the men that you appoint to leadership, that the men that you lay hands on and ordain in leadership measure up to the standard that is set forth in God's word. And I need you to know and understand that this is a remarkably high standard and a critically important responsibility that you bear as a congregation. Now, I have, I have watched. Listen, I get in the preacher huddles like we talked about a moment ago, and I hear the festivus for pastors and the airing of grievances from within their congregation. But in, in my experience, by my observation, most of the church implosions that I have observed were not primarily the problem of the congregants, but of men in the office of pastor who were unfit or unqualified to hold the office. Let me tell you where the responsibility for that lies. It lies not only with that pastor, but with the congregations who appointed them to those positions and laid hands on them and ordained them that they might serve in that office. Listen to me. I hope you never have to deal with this, at least for the next 20 or 30 years. But you had better be cautious about the men that you assign to the office of pastor. And churches, in my observation, seem far more concerned with making sure every constituent group in the church is represented in the search process than they do ensuring that there are spirit-filled men and women who have the ability by the spirit to discern the gifts and calling of God. Stop calling and stop ordaining men who are unfit or unqualified to serve in the office of pastor. Now, I don't think we have this as an issue, but the way you win that battle is before it is an issue. You settle deeply in your hearts as a congregation. You resolve together as a body that we will never break from the standard that's set forth in God's word with regards to the office of pastor. In most churches, what it means to be qualified to serve in the office of pastor is that somehow along the way, he's never been divorced. And I get that that is a qualification set forth in the scripture, but bless God, it ain't the only qualification set forth in the scripture. Or we pick the guy who does a good job at at teaching in his Sunday school class or some other setting. And it's critically important that a man be adept at word and doctrine. I get all of that. But the character of those individuals must be assessed. And no one wants to be the curmudgeon in the ordination council. But something of the character must be addressed. And along the way, it may be that there need be resistance to the ordination of of certain people. That's your responsibility, to evaluate against the standard of the scripture, to ask difficult questions. This is your responsibility. Now listen, there was a time in my life when I would have said, Give me 30, 35 minutes to talk death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. We'll worry about all this stuff when deacon election comes along. But I I have observed so many people hurt by men who were unfit for the office of pastor. And and on the opposite, 
pastors who've been deeply hurt by congregations who understood nothing of the biblical expectation for the office of pastor. Faith beset, people going the wayward way. This is a means of advancing the kingdom that we attend to this business, get it right in our hearts, and get it right in the local church God has assigned to us. This is critically important business. Shepherd the flock of God. You have a responsibility, and I have a responsibility to see that these expectations are upheld well. Now in verse 4, the Bible says, When the chief shepherd appears, you'll receive the unfading crown of glory. Peter reminds them that we're not serving as pastors in order to win the praise of people, but to, but to win the applause of God on the last day that standing before the judgment bar of God, we might hear from the shepherd, Well done, thy good and faithful servant. This placement of 1 Peter 5 is not haphazard or incidental. It's not as though Peter gets to the end of the letter and adds as an addendum an address to the pastors. There's, there's a flow about what Peter is saying here. In last week's passage, in the end of the body of the letter, Peter says, it's time that judgment began with the household of God. And I made a brief mention last week, you probably won't remember, that Peter was alluding there to a passage from Ezekiel chapter 7, where the judgment of God came on the nation of Israel. And when the judgment of God came on the nation of Israel, it began at the house of God, the temple of God, and it began specifically with the elders. Now, what we noted last week is that when Peter talks about the judgment beginning with the household of God, he's talking about the way suffering functions to separate the wheat from the chaff, the sheep from the goats, the true from the false. When suffering, especially suffering by persecution, comes on the church, you find out quickly who's in and who's out. So suffering ultimately has a sanctifying effect. Suffering now is the beginning of that all-discerning judgment of God on the last day when finally and forever the true are separated from the false. Now the elders are in view in that Ezekiel passage. And so Peter transitions nicely into this discourse on the responsibility of the eldership. And reminds them here in verse number four that we are laboring toward the last day. This is a not so subtle reminder to the leadership of the church. That it's not just the laity. Not just the member of the body that has the potential to defect or to drift under great duress. But even those in leadership. And more and more and more I'm hearing from brothers who were once faithful in ministry. Who under the difficulties and hardships of life and of ministry are defecting and departing the church altogether. This is a word of warning to those who hold leadership in the church. That you are not immune to or accepted from this phenomenon of defection. That you had better hold fast to Jesus and to finish well. I used to be. Ten years ago, enamored with a guy, had a big congregation, he could preach the house down, and he just seemed to have all of the gifts and abilities that people were drawn to in pastoral ministry. Now I'm enamored with the 80 or 90-year-old brother whose mind is somewhat dulled, and he doesn't have the kind of charisma that he once had, and he certainly doesn't have the energy or the stamina that he once enjoyed in ministry, but bless God, he's on the precipice of the crown of glory, and he is finishing well. Peter warns the leadership of the church, when the chief shepherd appears, you'll receive the unfading crown of glory. We're laboring toward that day, not the praise of men, but the pleasure of our God. Here the language is again interesting. You'll receive the unfading crown of glory. There's some liberty taken here with the translation. The term unfading is really not unfading in the original text. In fact, it's the name of a flower that I won't try to pronounce. But it was a flower that grew local to the churches Peter addressed. And even when the flower died, it maintained its color. You've seen either in motion pictures or in books, this sort of crowning with leafy crowns or flowers that was customary in Roman culture. If someone 
won an event, they had an achievement, or they were serving heroically locally or even abroad in the empire. They would be crowned with this leafy kind of crown. The Caesar would wear this leafy crown as an indication of his greatness, his heroism, or his achievement. Peter says, we're not laboring for those kinds of earthly crowns. The grass withers and its flower fades away. We're laboring for a heavenly crown which does not fade, an eternal crown. We're not laying up treasures here where moth and rust destroy and thieves break into steel, but in heaven where neither moth nor rust nor thieves can make a dent. We are laboring toward the end that having finished well, the Lord would look upon us and make that great acclamation of affirmation, we have finished well, well done. Verse 5, the Bible says, in the same way, you younger men be subject to the elders. Now, my understanding of what Peter is saying in verse number 5 is that younger elders are in view. Obviously, by implication, all young men are in view, but specifically younger elders. So these are men who hold the same office as those who may be older, more seasoned, wiser, more experienced, and they are to submit themselves or make themselves subject to those elders. What I can say with absolute certainty is that one of the most dangerous characteristic traits you can find in a leader is an unwillingness to submit to authority. You show me a leader who will not submit to authority. And there is authority over all of our lives. And I'll show you a dangerous, dangerous man. In fact, it has become for me one of the characteristic traits that I'm looking for first. Is there a willingness on their part to do as they're instructed by an authority to do? Young men, Peter says, be subject to the elders. And all of you clothe yourselves with humility toward one another. Kind of the way our structure is established here, the buck sort of stops with me, which sometimes can be good, sometimes not so good, sometimes it can be fun, sometimes it's not so fun, right? But I, 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 don't, I don't make decisions independent of our other pastors because of my ecclesiology, in part because I believe the New Testament speaks of a plurality of pastors or of elders who are leading over the church. A wise man walks in the counsel of many, and there is seldom a decision that is made, let alone an important decision that is made without consulting with the collective wisdom of the other pastors who serve us within our body. Elders, pastors, there ought to be an openness to hear the accountability and encouragements that are offered by those serving alongside you. A fool would insulate himself against the wisdom of other brothers who might stand to speak into a given scenario. And yet I meet pastors all the time and you can't tell them anything. They got it all figured out. They got the, the first year seminary student syndrome. They know everything that there is to know and you can't tell them anything about life or ministry. They got it all figured out. It's like me early in ministry. My first pastorate, I was there for about two and a half years. We came there in January and Trey was born in February. We were there less than a month and Trey was born. No, Trey was born in January. So we were there. We were there like two weeks and I knew everything about family and raising children. I mean everything. I knew everything. And now he's 17, and I don't know anything about family, raising children, right? You, you cannot know what you don't know. So just assume that there's a lot you don't know. And lean into the wisdom of other brothers around you who can speak into your circumstances and provide encouragement and insight that otherwise you'd be making decisions in isolation from. Clothe yourselves with humility toward one another because God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. The same proverb that James cites in the book of Proverbs when he warns against worldly wisdom and, and, and calls us to heavenly wisdom. Worldly wisdom expresses itself in egotism and pride. It's Proverbs 3.34. And the language there, a, a, a more rigid or literal rendering of the verse would say, God fights against the proud but gives grace to the humble. 
If you're a proud, egotistical, haughty person who will not hear the counsel of those around you, God is actively fighting against you. God is actively fighting against the proud, but is glad to give grace to the humble, the Bible says. Humble yourselves in verse 6, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that he may exalt you in the proper time. James reaches similar conclusions. When God gets ready for your exaltation, he won't need your assistance to make it happen. Humble yourselves under the hand of God, and he'll lift you up at the proper time. God is into the reversal of fortunes. And so if you'll humble yourself under his hand, if you'll trust his way, even when the outcomes don't seem pleasant to you, he'll lift your head and exalt you in the proper time. This is his way, right? This is exactly what we see in the life of Jesus, who humbled himself to the point of death, even death on the cross. And the response of God in the reversal of the fortunes of the only begotten Son of God was to give him the name which is above every name that every knee in heaven and on earth would humbly bow and confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Now, I'm not saying anyone's going to call you Lord, but I can guarantee you this. If you'll humble yourself before God, he'll lift your head in due time. God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. Now in verse 6, there's, there's sort of a, a broader principle here. Humble yourselves before God. But, but it's, it's still somewhat specific to the office of elder or of pastor. The principle applies universally. But it seems to me that the pastor is still in view. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that he may exalt you at the proper time, casting all your care on him because he cares about you. We all know, we sing it as children, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. I was a heathen child, and I knew that, right? We learn this at an early age, at least, to mimic this, to state this, that Jesus loves us. But I mean, you, you've got to know this with some depth. Down into the deep and dark crevices of your heart and soul, you've got to know that God in heaven loves you and he has called you to this because in spite of the many joys experienced in ministry there will inevitably be some very very challenging days he cares about you i found that my early experiences in vocational ministry parallel those of many others my home church was just precious. I mean, those people loved me. I mean, everything I did was great. They praised. If I took up the offering, I did it better than anyone else had ever taken up the offering ever in the history of that church, you know. I mean, they were so sweet to me. And every man shook my hand and every little lady hugged my neck. And I mean, I was just a young guy that sensed the call to ministry. And they wanted to do everything that they could to encourage me in that work. And they were and they are precious. There, there, there are people in that church who prayed me to faith, and, and there's at least two people that I know of personally who haven't missed a week in 20 years praying for me. Think about that. That's big time. Praying for me. They loved me so well. So I left there to go be a student pastor. I was a youth pastor for 365 days for exactly one year. Sometimes I say in jest, I served a five-year sentence as a youth minister, one year. And it was just about, it was just about as you would have imagined it. And, uh, and, and so here's, here, I go to this, I go to a new church, and I'm, I'm on staff in this new church, and nobody's praising me, because they're paying me to do these things now, right? We had this conversation with the boys, and why should we give you money for doing what we expect you, or, or give you money for doing what we expect you to do, or celebrate the fact that you did what you were supposed to do. There's no bonus in that, right? There's sort of a, a shift. Whereas my home church ha had this long developed interest in seeing me succeed and be encouraged in ministry. Although my new church body had an interest in seeing me successful in ministry. It wasn't the long-developed, heartfelt, affectionate kind of thing I was accustomed to. Here, here's what I realized about myself pretty quickly. My response to the goodness of those people in my home church congregation 
it was precious, was that I became addicted to the praise of people. And it didn't take me long in ministry to find out that I better get myself addicted to the knowledge that God loves me and God has called me if I was going to be long sustained in the work to which I was called. The praise of people comes and it goes. You're never as good as they say you are. You're never as bad as they say you are. But the one thing that never changes in life or in ministry as a follower of Jesus is that God in heaven loves his people. That he has called us to this work, gifted us in this work, set his affection upon us. And nothing, no nothing can separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. Aren't you glad for that? He's loved us so much so that he sent his son for us. Before we ever were called to ministry, God sent his son for us who bled and died on the cross, rose again on the third day, beckons that we would come to him. He beckons that you this morning would, would come to him before we were ever in the ministry. God saved us from our sin. Well, that's gracious. Oh, it's gracious. It's gracious. And what God's done for every gospel minister, he's the power to do in your life as well. You need only believe on Jesus, repent of your sin, and believe on Jesus to find the grace and the mercy and favor of God, in no way exclusive to ministers, but lavished freely on all who come to faith in him. Come to Jesus. Let's go to him in prayer. Father, thank you for your word and for its truth and for these moments this morning to spend time considering your church the office of pastor, your goodness toward us in the gospel. God, I, I pray that you would help us as pastors here, Lord, each one of us, myself, Frank, Jason, Charles, Derek, Kevin, Stephen, God, Trey, help each of us, Lord, to love you above all else, to love your people with all of our hearts, and God, give us favor with them so that they likewise would love us too. God, I pray that you would help us to have healthy biblical expectations and an understanding of, of how the church is to function, what we are to do each in our respective offices or capacities. God, that our desire to honor you in these ways would serve to enhance our effectiveness, our efficiency to see the kingdom advanced across the street and around the world. God, I pray that you would forgive us where we come short. So often we do. Lord, we're thankful to be loved by you. I pray that you use these next moments, Lord, to draw men and women and boys and girls to yourself. Save some, God, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.